We've been zapped into enlightenment for a few seconds, but we come back here and we don't know what to do with it. We had it there, we don't have it here because our significant others, there's, there's that tug of war to go back to being the way you were before. You know, nobody wants to see you change, that's too uncomfortable. So there's that enlightenment and then there's a tremendous amount of grief for having to give up the light and be back here. And then after the grieving process, there's a search to find it again, only this time here. And eventually you do, but you have to heal yourself. The, the near-death experience is an initiation, but it's only the beginning. Then there's the search. And I think what I've come to in 16 years of searching is that the universe is benevolent and the universe is meaningful. And we have to heal ourselves enough to be able to see that and live our lives according to that. And so it's only been recently, again, this was, you know, 20, 26 years ago, that it's been so funny because that near-death experience has, has hovered around me. It's been something that I have, it's, it's just been at the forefront of, of things, but it hasn't really come into being to, you know, to truly understand it. Uh, it's only been recently, in the last few months, that I went, oh, I think I'm remembering. I think I'm, I'm seeing it. I'm thinking, you know, the pieces are fitting together. As I'm delivering these messages that are coming through me uh, for you, um, that I'm remembering a lot more, and that's what we're, what we're here to do, is to remember who we really are and that essence of truth that you know that the god the spirit that we are in, in in us you know the soul that came here to experience this tremendous um blissful state of being and um that what i what i am learning from it and what i have learned from it is no matter what anybody says out there, that is not the truth. The truth exists within us. And the nurses made those comments that we're losing her and the baby's heart rate is dropping based on the machine that I was hooked up to. They saw the numbers. And um, they reported those numbers as being truth. And so that's what they went with. And we, when we can look at numbers and we can look at everything and that people will base truth on those things, but that was not the truth. It was, it was somebody's perception of the truth, but, you know, I, I knew um, there's, a, <laughs> there's a little squirrel wanting to come say hello. Hello, little squirrel. Is running across my deck. Anyway, <laughs> hello. <laughs> um, we are the only ones that know the truth, and you will only know it based on going within. And so when I entered into that higher state of consciousness, that was my truth. That was a remembering. Now, even though I don't have a recollection of a decision being made could I leave this physical world or could I go or, or could I stay um, I do know that that's what happened and a choice was made for me to stay 
and that we get those those um, messages within us to make to make decisions. And these are the you know within our soul, it's the only decision maker that we should refer to. It's really the only the, the captain of our ship, so to speak. And um, I mean, we can ask people you know their opinions, but. It's really us to go back to our origins and say, what do you think here? What's the best choice? What's the best path? So I wanted to share this experience with you and learn, and still learning. As like I said, um, you know, it's, it's been hovering a lot, but it, now it's within my being. Now it's saying, remember, you know the truth, remember because it is a remembering from us. There isn't anything we have to learn. There isn't anything we have to know. It's just a, a recalling, a remembering. The only way we're going to do that is to do the processes to uncover those things, to release the things that don't serve us anymore so that the light of who we truly are is shown very brightly. And um, it's, it's just an amazing journey. So now I have that, that experience of the near-death experience of that state of being. Because I do know circumstances don't matter, only state of being matters. That's all that matters. It is the vibratory tone that exists within us that is calling forth to say, remember, remember you are love and light. And no matter what somebody says, no matter what numbers are being said, that is not the truth. So just wanted to give you that information so that may help you to really go inside. Always communicate with your own soul who knows you best, who knows the decisions that um, will bring about your highest good. I would say it was just real. Uh... I mean, this this is real, I suppose, but that was just very real. It certainly left a very strong imprint on my mind. I mean, I've never forgotten it, and that's over 17 years ago now. Well, I think I've changed in just about every way it's possible to change. Uh, certainly it's a long time, and, and it has taken a long time for those changes to come about. But I do really attribute those changes to that experience. Uh, at the beginning, I, w I didn't tell anybody about the experience. I'd never heard of anybody having one. And it frightened me to think about it in a way. I felt that if I told people, they'd think I was crazy. So I chose not to tell anybody for a year. It was a year before I told my mother about the experience. And uh, she was very um, concerned about it. But by that stage, I'd already started to feel more confident about myself. Uh, during that first year, I think I was really in a state of puzzling and wondering about what it was all about, why I'd had that experience and what it really meant for me. And, but straight away after it, uh, a lot of things changed already, like uh, small things like I started to, um, to do yoga, and I'd never done that before. And I started to, through the yoga, I started then to become a vegetarian, be interested in that. And that's continued ever since. Those sorts of little things were very big steps for me at that time because I was just a normal 
well, a stay-at-home housewife with two little babies and I'd never done anything like that before. It seemed very daring to me at the time, <laughs> doesn't it now? And, uh, but that was a good start, I can see. Uh, also, I just felt I wanted to know more things. I wanted knowledge. And so I started to read voraciously. And even though I'd been a reader in my childhood, I hadn't really been reading all that much in recent years before that experience. But I started reading really very solidly. And um, I decided that I wanted to go to university because I'd never been to university and uh, to learn. I didn't go there, didn't think of going there to get a profession, but to learn more things. I just felt I had to know more things. The first impact from this uh, on my life was that I had been raised as a Catholic and I was a very good Catholic and I went to school and I went to uh, religious ceremonies, I went to church every Sunday. But it was kind of like rote talking about, you know, what is God, God's everywhere, and talking about prayers. But after this accident, I stopped going to church. I felt that I was very spiritual, that I didn't need to go to church anymore, that I knew God was in, within me, and I didn't need a middleman to talk to God. 2007, I had a second NDE. I had some internal bleeding. I went to the hospital. I was given a pint of blood. I was in the hospital for about nine days. And a couple of days later, they gave me a second pint of blood. And then all of a sudden, two days later, I went downhill fast. It was that night, and they were giving me two pints of blood. They weren't sure if I was going to make it. So I'm laying on my bed, and I said, God, universe, whatever's out there, I'm calling on you for your help. Help me now. And something happened that was very dramatic. Somehow, I was lying on my bed, and I and my bed were going high up in the air. It's like we're going so high up, the breeze was brushing by me. But yeah, I could see my room. I could see the IVs. I could see the blood in my arms and those stands. And the other part of my room was not moving. But I did go high up in the air with my bed. Next day, I started doing much better. Two days later, I was out of the hospital. And again, I felt much more spiritual, that I know much more about God. And I don't necessarily need a religion. I do like spiritualism because I get to talk to people on the other side, but it did change my life. Uh, but what I liked about the conference was the attitude of the people there. Most of them, there's a whole lot of people there that have had near-death experiences. They're not, um, they're not driven by ego like we are in most of life. They're driven by loving each other, uh, getting along with people, spreading what they know, uh, sharing. It's just a whole different attitude. And um, I was there with uh, Dr. Alexander and uh, Dr. Mary Neal, um, both of whom have had near-death experiences and are published authors. And um, all of these people have a, a different feeling, a different attitude about life. They see life differently because they have a knowledge that life doesn't end when you die. Mm -hmm. So there's no fear of death. I have no fear of death. I, I can't wait to get back there honestly. Mm -hmm. Now you say, well, if you can't wait to get back there, why don't you commit suicide? Well, we know that we can't go there until we're finished here. So committing suicide, we have to come back anyway. Mm -hmm. And we want to go there permanently. So we're all happy to be here until it's done. Yeah. How do you know it's done? How do you know you've finished? How do you know what your mission is? I've heard that you, know, you have a, a feeling that you have a mission, but it may not be articulated, so that when you come back here, you're, you're fumbling around trying to find out what the mission is. Is that part of, That's is, part is of, finding out what your mission is part of the mission? 
it's part of the mission. And uh, when we're born without a near-death experience, we're just born into the, our uh, existence here, and let's call it a normal life. Um, that's our purpose, is to find out why we're here. We're reminded of it big time when we have a near-death experience, that you can't leave until you finish your purpose, so you better find out what it is. Plus, we know we want to go back to the other side. And so we are very anxious to find out our purpose. And so it sort of comes to you over time. The, the near-death experience, uh, the IONS has found that there's major changes in the psychology of people who have had near-death experiences. They become less greedy, they're less egotistical, um, they don't really care about material things at all. Um, they're, they're not so crazy as to give all their money away, but mm -hmm. they don't really care so much. They're not so concerned about if they have a better car than the other guy, that right. sort of thing. What is it about the near-death experience that makes this change in people? I know you've told me that you've experienced the same thing. You, you, before you wanted to be a winner, now you're not so much concerned with that. Um, what does concern you, and, and why would this experience of the light, of an enhanced consciousness, cause people to be less egotistical or less ego-centered? We realize that we're on a progression, that we're on a learning process, we're on a progression. We have things we came here to do. Mm -hmm. um, we tend to be more loving. Um, we realize we have eternity. Mm -hmm. We have forever to get this done. Um, that it's, we're not... We're not going to come out of this until we finish it, mm -hmm. and that may take two or three lifetimes. Mm -hmm. um, we know that um, the purpose of being here is to make that progression. So we're interested in growing spiritually, and it's right. mostly spiritual growth that we're talking about. Right. Uh, the exact thing that the, the um, um, St. Paul talks about it, uh, he had a near-death experience on the road to Damascus. He talks about it in Corinthians. Mm -hmm. Most times when you hear about uh, Paul's experience on the road to Damascus, you're reading Luke in Acts, in the book of Acts, and Luke is just a follower of Paul, but he actually writes about it in First Corinthians, Second Corinthians 12. Mm -hmm. And um, there he talks about um, the idea of being two people and becoming the better person. And that's what we're up to. And so we really shift there's a real shift. Uh, P.J. Matwater calls it the brain shift. Right, right. Your brain reconstitutes and you see things differently. Mm -hmm. It was an absolutely phenomenal experience where I realized a very, very significant spiritual lesson that my not wanting to leave the heavenly worlds was like being on one side of a dotted line where we seek consciousness, we seek heaven, and God for ourselves, for our own nirvana. But that's not what it's meant for. God is the greatest servant of all life. To be in true communion with God and to truly listen and participate with God and become a co-worker with God, that's the goal. And to do that, we have to follow the instructions as they're given. We have to open our hearts and truly believe thy will be done is the way. Follow that way because when I was able to help save my sister's life, the joy, the experience was so fulfilling, so deeply gratifying, and I committed my life to that, to following the inner guidance, to listening, to
to be aware that heaven is present here and now, that God is with us at all times, and the universe is speaking to us at all times, and drop the preposterous beliefs of my childhood that wouldn't allow for such a thing to have occurred, um, that you would see God and, and know God and be able to experience the divine uh, without dying and going to heaven, and that it doesn't matter what your religion is, that we're all beautiful souls. We're divine, we're beautiful, we're aware, we're capable. We are um, everything we might ever want to be already. We are that. And we simply need to recognize it, be aware of it. You know, the biggest thing I can say is because when one is in the presence of the light being or in the presence of the light, all one can feel is our experience is love. And that love is what we, the person who had ND brings back. Because the f feeling is there that the essential nature is love of the pure consciousness. And the love is not just a love between husband and wife, but love which is very hard to describe, is more to feel, is kind of unconditional. Characteristics of psychological change include, as people have said, not being afraid of death anymore. People who've gone through an NDE typically aren't afraid of death. People who've tried to kill themselves almost never try to hurt themselves again because they know they've come back with a mission. Um, experiencers develop a feeling of timelessness um, except for before and after. There's before the NDE and after the experience. Um, many experiencers become more intuitive. They remember the future. They finish other people's sentences. Um, sometimes they can hear, or they feel they can hear, plants or animals speak. Forgiveness tends to replace criticism. I think you had mentioned, whoops, where'd she go? Um, Barbara had said that she had felt forgiveness toward the people that had abused her. People forgive others. And people who've had a sense of materialism or high sense of achievement often give that over. They're much more laid back after they go through an NDE. Unfortunately for family members and spouses, that's often a real tough thing to go through. It wasn't what they signed up for. So the divorce rate is very high for people who've been through an NDE. It's about 75%. There was a woman months later that had the same situation happen. She accidentally ate a piece of, she had ice cream. And in the ice cream there was a nut from cross-contamination and she went into anaphylaxis and then went into a coma and then got out of the coma several months later and then since then has been in a vegetative state. So to go from something where I should have died, well, if I didn't pass away, I should have been severely mentally handicapped due to lack of oxygen to my brain. And I didn't, I walked out. That's always something that's grounded me and it's also at times a little scary because it shows how fragile life is and how clear life gets and priorities or what is and isn't important when you are laying, laying on a bed and you're dying, very few things matter.
It's dictated a lot of my relationships and how I've decided to live my life. I never spoke about this for six and a half years. I would not talk about it. Everyone knew I had a peanut allergy and that's it. People said what happened is I had a really bad reaction and that was it. People would ask me, I would not discuss it. But what's given me that extra push is I've met people that have had experiences and others that hearing these stories and hearing others' experiences has really helped them. And given that I was allowed a second chance, I feel it's fair that I can give back. And if one or two people hear this and it helps them in any way, then that's fine. It's worth it to me. As difficult as it still is every moment I discuss it or even some days when I just deal with it, that's fine. So I found strength in that. It's very difficult using language to describe near-death experiences because even when I talk about the experience, there's some things I can't use any language for to describe or, you know, whether it's the beauty or the consciousness or the idea of being in that position. Language, is very, language I've realized from this experience is very limited. Having had my experience, I look at death as an event that's very natural and an event that's not to be feared. It was okay. And I live my life as much as I can in gratitude and look at everything as a blessing from here on out. The most remarkable healing was my soul. The, the sadness, the grief, the regret, the pain, the agony of losing my husband to suicide was gone. And what the angels told me was that it had been encapsulated, that it was there and it, it had caused a lot of pain, but it couldn't hurt me anymore. And I found that to be true. I was in the hospital for four days, and as soon as I got home from the hospital, I had these uh, mole traps all over my backyard. <laughs> I'm still, you know, I'm, I'm still pretty weak, fresh out of the hospital, and I went around the backyard and I kicked all the mole traps out because I thought these could hurt somebody. I just, <laughs> the idea of hurting a little mole caused me great pain. And I subsequently uh, started selling off all of my personal possessions. As a writer, I had vast amounts of archival documents and materials and a massive private collection of historical ephemera of different types. I donated all of it to a college library I started selling off my family's heirlooms, furniture that had been in the fam family for generations because I thought, you know, somebody else will enjoy this a lot. And then I sold my car, and that's when my friends really thought I'd lost my mind. That was my dream car. I, I had special ordered it. It took two months to get. But I drove it back to the dealership, had a friend take me, and I said, how much will you give me for this car? And they said, Mrs. Thornton, you, you spent two months waiting for that car. And I said, I know I don't need it anymore. <laughs> After I'd sold my furniture, my possessions in my car, I sold my home, listed it, sold within two hours. And then I left. I left. I was living in, uh, in the Virginia Beach area, and I left. I packed my clothes and some possessions in a slightly used Prius, which I had bought, and I drove a thousand miles due west to start a new life. And that, that was also exactly what I needed. I, the old memories of where I had lived with my husband were dragging me to the depths of hell. And starting over was liberating. I, I cannot begin to describe what it felt like to be free of all those earth weights and to have a new chance at a new life. And so many people have said, oh, I wish I could do that. And yet, that's what's interesting is that's when my friends really thought I'd lost my mind is when I started selling off everything I owned and said I was going a thousand miles west. 
So that's, um, it's changed me in every way a human being can be changed, and it's all for the good. And now life, everything looks so different. And I, I, I do cry more easily. When I hear about somebody who's lost somebody to suicide, I typically just burst out in tears because I feel their pain. And yet I don't, I don't go home crying and keep crying for days like I used to. I don't crawl into bed and stay there. So everything has gotten so much better. There are a lot of times, I guess the biggest struggle is I still think maybe I died and I've just gone to a new place because I'm not sure exactly what's happening. <laughs> I feel completely different. And, and then I found myself falling, 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 falling. And the next experience I had was moving from this brilliant light, love and joy into excruciating pain in my body. And within the next 24 hours, I realized that I had been changed. I can look at the nurses and doctors around me and I was kind of amused. Well, they're trying to heal people, but they're totally unaware that they got medical problems of their own. <laughs> because I can now see the aura, you see, and I can see what ails them, etc., etc. And I'm listening to people's opinions and I'm like, where in the world did they get that idea? And then I stop and ask myself, but wait a minute, Norma, yesterday you believed that too. How come you don't believe it now, see? Going through a near-death experience is a paradigm shift. You shifted from where you are, and 90% of what we walk around thinking we believe is really what was told to us. And it doesn't really matter whether it's not, a lot of it is real, it's true, but it's not our belief until we've experienced it. So the universe sends you these experiences so you can make what you're walking with and you're, you're holding on to can make it your own belief. Does that make sense? So then they slammed me back and they sent me back and now all hell broke loose. I was really, really very aware. If I opened my mouth and said half the things that I could see, they would put me in a mental institution. Thank God for that. I was very aware of that because I ran into someone recently who opened his mouth right there in the hospital and started talking and he did end up in a mental institution for a while because they thought he was crazy. So the life now changed, three years of depression, uh, three attempts at suicide, because I don't want to be here. And after the third attempt, uh, which was kind of very interesting, the voice in my head said, well, A, if you come back, we're going to send you back. So stop trying to get here illegally. And then I said, well, is there a legal way to do this? How can I do this legally? The one episode that perplexes me and changed my perspective on everything was they put in an implanted cardiac defibrillator. And in order to test it, they had to kill me, but just for a little while, they would stop my heart with chemicals. And the test was only going to last 20 seconds. And 20 seconds later, I was here again. But it wasn't 20 seconds for me. Wherever I had been was an undefinable, eternal time of time where I was totally settled in. I was totally happy wherever I was when I was dead here. And there's only two things that I remembered when I came back to life as if I was in a conversation. I had agreed to come back and I was being told the way to get through all the rest of my life was to be positive. Health was obviously an enormous concern for me. The scientific, modern medical community had done all they could with me and had fixed me. 
childhood and I was on probably a half a dozen different medications. Basically, I just felt like I was on horse tranquilizers all the time. And that didn't feel like living to me. So I was very concerned with how to regain not only being alive on this plane of existence, but how to be healthy. And I think a lot of it just comes down to, as simplistic as it seems, is diet and exercise and a good attitude. JFK said one of the simplest, most rewarding delights in life is riding a bicycle. And I ride a bicycle every place around the crowded streets where I live because I get that feeling of, wow, this is a simple pleasure surrounded by chaos. There is so much negativity in the universe. I wouldn't even say in the universe. There's so much negativity in the human perspective right now in politics, in the entertainment industry, all of the god-awful worst stuff you can possibly imagine seems to be happening all at once and is reported constantly. So I would say, if I brought back something to me that not everybody seems to have that I have now, is what Jesus said, is I would not take you out of the world, but I would take you out of the evil in the world. You can vibrate on a positive level, and it works like telepathy. And the more you have an all-encompassing, loving, engaging perspective on life and whatever you encounter in life, the more you vibrate on that level and attract good stuff to you by being positive. And so I think that's why I was given the most simplistic interpretation of life on this plane of existence and other ones beyond is be positive. But my experience of being dead didn't change me that much. But I think it changed my perspective on everything that this planet and this universe is about. I'm convinced this is only a classroom or a trip to Disneyland that we take and learn a lot of lessons in how to assimilate life, appreciate life, appreciate the people in our lives, and appreciate what a wonderful gift life on this planet is, as opposed to in different states of conflict. The one message I got was to be positive. So, having come back into my body, um, I came back with a completely new set of values. All the, all the values I'd had before, all the, the important things that I seemed to be doing before were, were just a nonsense. And, and I was just so glad to be alive and be able, capable of, of, of appreciating what we have here of sounds and people and, and, and colours and flowers and, and growing things. And it was, it was a f fundamentally life-changing experience. And the other big thing is I came back completely without fear of anything, because once you're, once you're not afraid of death, there's not much point in being afraid of, of anything else. 
and I decided that what I was doing was not very satisfying, so I came down to Cornwall and I, I, down, down here because I knew there was something. Down, I'd been pulled down here for years. All right, this happened in 1955. Yes. In 1955, the phrase near-death experience didn't exist. Nobody even knew what that meant, what that was. Mm -hmm. So, first of all, here I am, a religious person who has experienced something that would be spiritual if not religious. My personal problem was that none of my religious experiences were there. I was with the light. There was no judgment. There was no hell. There was no good and bad. There was no big tally in the sky. There was just the light absorbing me and consuming me with unconditional love in which I was able to consume and absorb everyone else with unconditional love. So that I didn't know what that meant. I didn't understand it. So I spent 20, 25 years like a, like a nomad ro roaming the earth trying to figure out, I don't know what to do. I thought I was crazy. I thought if I ever told anybody about this, that I would be locked up in a, in a room with rubber walls and be there for the rest of my life. So I never spoke of it for over 25 years. I get up every day. I live every day like it's my last day. And I would encourage everybody to take a good look at, at where, where your life is because everything is pretty much small stuff for me. I'm serious. I don't, uh, I don't worry about a lot of things. If, uh, if I get to it, I get to it. If I don't, I don't. But I, I'm not going to fret over it. And uh, I'm not the same person that I was. Even my children have told me they like me better now. But I would encourage you, every chance you have, to listen to somebody who's been where I've been because that is one of the top 10 questions of all time. What happens to me when I die? Mm -hmm. People like me will give you their account. You may want to hear another 10 or 20 of them. You may want to get on YouTube and take a look at some of the people that have put themselves out there. It's hard because you, you, you face a lot of wrath from people, but then when you realize, I think I'm supposed to be doing this. I think I'm supposed to be doing this. And um, I'm glad I'm here. Everybody here in this room is here because they're thinking about that in some way, shape, or form, what happens to them when they die. They are. Uh, and my life changed as a result of that. Now, when I came back, um, I was uh, disoriented in a way of, what does, now what? Because I wanted to stay there. And, and, and my sense was, if I got to be back here, it better be good. <laughs> and because it really, the, the difference, the comparison was that this is like sludging through mud compared to the ease and the love that's there. And it was shortly after that experience that, and I was having these feelings of now what, that I was reading a pay, uh, newspaper fully open. I turned the page and there was a full page article on hospice and the word yes just came up off the page and I've been working in hospice ever since. So that's my work, that's my story. 
but I was able to see the situation from a, from this higher perspective that I now just kind of was able to have temporarily. And I noticed that I just saw the folly in my ways. I saw how these drugs were affecting me. I saw that they were bringing me down and fucking me up. And, and like these weren't real friends. These were just people that I sort of ended up hanging out with because we all sort of reinforced our dysfunction. We felt better about ourselves knowing that we weren't the only one washing our life away with, with heroin and crack and drugs and whatnot. Um, and I just saw it so clearly. And then after that, I, we just come, we came back to this realm, this awesome realm, and we were playing this weird game. It was a game where I had like a, a handle and like a, like a, I don't know, it was like a half circle thing. And we were like, it's a name, it's an actual game, I think. And you like, we were like whipping these balls back and forth to each other. We'd, we'd scoop it up out of the air, we'd whip the balls. And it was the most fun I've had in a while. I, I was relying on drugs to like, make me feel good to to that was my idea of a good time getting high and then it didn't matter what i did because i was like high you know i i lost my my i lost i lost the joy of simple activities like throwing a ball with your buddy you know and i just remember giggling and laughing like a little school kid just having the time of my life and you know this whole time i was just like almost at rapid speeds examining my life from this like higher perspective that I just got to embody. I, again, I, I knew myself as a spirit, as a soul, as an internal soul. I knew that these divine realms are like really where I came from. It's my true home. That's like the real thing that resonated with me the most, that this awesomeness, this beautiful love, this place is my home. It's where I'm from. That's not my home. That's not me. Um, and it was just so amazing. And then I woke up. I, sh I didn't wake up. I shot up out of bed like, what the fuck was that? I realized in the, in the moment, even though I, like, I realized I was back in my like, body and everything, like, I, that was not a dream. That was like something happened there. And well, this is another thing that I learned when I was there, um, which is very difficult for me to ever bring up in church, which I have never brought up in church, ever. God loves everyone. And it isn't just Christians that God loves. God loves everyone, no matter what religion, no matter what anything. I mean, obviously, you know, we're all, let's take color, hum, humans with different colors. I mean, obviously, I mean, <laughs> we're God's children. So obviously, we should all be loving each other. And as far as religion is concerned, um, I can't make any decisions about that other than the fact that I know that God loves all of us. And it isn't that he loves just Christians. It took a long time until I was able to face this madness internally because it was very uncomfortable to deal with something that you can't classify with your normal senses. But this experience eventually tells me that there isn't anything that is for nothing. Your actions always cause some kind of response. You're connected. You're not alone. This experience was very significant, but it takes time to process. 
It takes courage, and maybe I needed this inner push that told me, come on, in order to face the indescribable and give it space. It's very hard for me though. Maybe I'm too German, maybe too theoretical, or maybe too intellectual. To be honest, I cannot grasp it properly. On one hand, it seemed absolutely real. There's a part of me that tries to tell me that it was the shock. It was that part that struggled with this whole experience. But there's this inner knowledge in me that tells me that this was not imagined. It wasn't anything I had read into because I had heard about these things and wanted to experience them myself. It was an absolute, realistic, deeply felt and very personal experience. That I just wanted to do better, to be in this place and to be in this presence of this life that just unconditionally loved me, made me want to treat people better and made me want to love myself. I, mean, I think uh, I was no different than, than a lot of people that, that are always criticizing themselves or uh, feeling guilty about things. That's the way that I was raised. That's the religion that I was raised in, that you know, uh, God was someone to be feared and, and that I would be judged, so I needed to walk a straight line. And it was, it was so different than that. I was loved unconditionally, and all I wanted to do was come back and do better and love people and, and learn how to love and forgive and be a better person and have something better to offer. And all of the things that I was taught all of my life about the way that religion was or the way that God is through my religion, it just it wasn't true for me in that experience. So I came back with a real thirst to find the truth and find knowledge. Those were the two words that I woke up with that just, I heard them over and over and over, the importance of finding truth and seeking knowledge. So that's what my life has been about, trying to figure out what it is all about. And I'm open to anything. I, I, I would uh, listen to anybody, read anything. Um, I just want to, I just want to find the truth in everything. But the one thing that I feel like I cannot go wrong with is loving people. And no matter how hard that can be to do at times, it can be really challenging and difficult, then I still have to go to that place where I felt that unconditional love coming from God and, and try to, to get that feeling in my heart and then send that out to other people. What you are basically deep, deep down, far, far in, is simply the fabric and structure of existence itself. So, say in Hindu mythology, they say that the world is the drama of God. God is not something in Hindu mythology with a white beard that sits on a throne and that has royal prerogatives. God in, in Indian mythology is the self, Satchitananda, which means Sat, that which is, Chit, that which is consciousness, that which is Ananda is bliss. And in other words, re, the, the, what exists, reality itself is gorgeous. It is the plenum the fullness of total joy. 
And all those stars, if you look out in the sky, as a firework display, like you see on the 4th of July, which is a great occasion for celebration, the universe is a celebration. It is a firework show to celebrate that existence is. Wow-wee. Wow-wee.